I'm Brendan Bain, and for Nick Hennon, I'm a science writer for Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and this is SciVibe. It's almost like a, a living bioreactor. You know, we're very interested as an economy of building biorefineries where we're figuring out how to take natural systems and make the necessary products we need. And this is a great example where you, where you have this and we can learn how it's done in nature and we can learn what bacteria are doing certain processes, what enzymes the fungus is making to break it down into the precursors, and we can leverage it for helping in so many different ways. Science, technology, scientific discovery. This is SciVibe. So Kristen, it's really good to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited to learn all about your research. Could you please tell us who you are and what you do at the lab? Thank you, Brendan. I'm a senior scientist at Pacific Northwest National Lab, and I work in the Environmental Molecular Sciences Laboratory. For my research, I'm an analytical chemist, which means I use tools to characterize how molecules change in complex biological systems. Specifically, I use mass spectrometry to understand how proteins, metabolites, and lipids change across time, change across space, and change across composition in these complex systems. That's awesome. So when you aren't doing science, when you're not at the lab, what do you like to do for fun? I enjoy spending time with my family, um, my husband, and my seven-year-old daughter. And Whenever we can, we like to get outside and spend a little time in nature. That's awesome. Uh, so today we're talking about gardens, but we're not talking about the sort of typical gardens where you would have tomatoes and peas and carrots and kale. Instead, we're talking about fungus, fungal gardens. So tell us, what is the system that you study and uh, who are the key players inside of it? Yeah, absolutely. For the system, you know, naturally evolved microbial systems that are capable of efficient deconstruction of plant biomass do exist. And an excellent example of such a system is the leafcutter ant fungal garden ecosystem. Now, I've seen pictures of leafcutter ants carrying large pieces of leaves across the rainforest floor. Now, the ants do not actually eat the leaves. Instead, they're, they're little farmers and they use the leaves to grow a fungus that acts as the ant colony's food source. So the name fungus garden is actually misleading because within this garden ecosystem, you have fungus and a resident bacterial community. And these species work together for efficient breakdown of plant biomass. Now in nature, leafcutter ants are dominant herbivores and they can consume as much as 17% of leaf biomass in neotropical ecosystems uh, like the rainforest. So that's a significant amount of leaf biomass. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, you mentioned that the system is efficient and that's something I'd love to hear more about. When, when you have these natural systems, they have the benefit of having been honed over like millions of generations. And I imagine as they go through those generations, they get more and more efficient. I, you know, that's in contrast to say human inventions, which can sometimes be uh, quite wasteful or it takes a long time to get them as efficient as say natural systems. So would you say that what the ants have going on here in their fungal gardens, is that is this an efficient system? Yeah, it's definitely an efficient system. If, if you kind of take a closer look at what the fungal gardens look like, if we kind of pause and, and talk about that for a second. So if the, the fungal gardens are still housed in a cameras laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a lot of their laboratory-kept communities are about the size of a softball. So you have the softball 
leaf material is introduced at the top of the, the fungal garden. And then over a four to six week time period, it transverses or travels down through the garden. And as it travels down over this four to six week time period, it's degraded. So the top of the garden is kind of an initial stage of degradation. In the middle, it's more of an intermediate stage. And then when you get down to the bottom, you have the advanced stages of leaf degradation. So the bacterial species change in time as you're going through this degradation kind of, you know, longitudinal sampling throughout it. So if you were to take the garden and do a cross section of it, you would then see this gradient of degradation where you've got the freshest leaves at the top and then on down they get more and more degraded? Absolutely. So if you, you visualize the garden, you have green leafy material on the top. It's being introduced. Um, the ants put it on top and they'll, they'll take little pieces of fungus and kind of put it on top of the newly introduced leaves, get that degradation started. And then as you, you look through that cross section, you can see, um, you know, the leaves are definitely undergoing the degradation in the middle and in the end. And the reason why the ants do this is in that middle section, what they get all out of this, you know, I mentioned it was their food source, in the middle, there's these really nutrient-rich, delicious hyphae um, that are made by the fungus. So these little tiny things called gongolidia, and that's what the ants eat. So they don't eat you know, just random pieces of this fungus garden. They eat these little nutrient-rich gongolidia or fungal hyphae that are produced in the middle. If you look at these colonies, they're, they're huge. Our millions of workers are within these ant colonies. And, and you know, we think of our, our little tiny anthills that we have in our backyard. Well, the scale of the anthills for the leafcutter ant colonies, you can actually see them on Google Maps. And they're the size of old growth trees. So these are massive, massive ecosystems. And for a little history, I first started studying this fungal garden ecosystem in collaboration with Professor Cameron Curry at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it was, it was back in 2010 you know, over a decade ago, and there was an ongoing debate at the time to whether the fungus or members of the bacterial community were actually degrading the plant material in the gardens. Now, this is because if you take pure samples of just the fungus and you grow it in a laboratory, it doesn't efficiently degrade plant material. So back a decade ago, many scientists were saying, well, if that's the case, then we believe maybe it's the bacteria that's actually responsible for breaking down the leaves. Now, Cameron's lab specializes in genomics. His lab found that both the fungus and the bacterial species, they contain the genes necessary to make the proteins responsible for deconstructing leaves. But the thing about genes, um, we're all familiar with the genome, they're not always made into proteins. So they're almost like a blueprint. So the genome has a lot of options to give organisms the ability to be flexible and change to their environment. Their environments are constantly changing. This broad capacity to make different proteins gives them the opportunity to adapt. So since both the fungus and the bacteria had the potential to have the genes for making proteins to break down plants, it was the job of my lab to then look at what proteins are actually made by the fungal garden ecosystem. And that's the cool thing about proteomics. You know, our proteomic results from my lab showed that it was definitely the fungus that was the dominant degrader in plant deconstruction, breaking it down. But 
the reason why it didn't grow efficiently by itself on plant material is because the bacteria, we could see it was required to accelerate the fungal growth by converting the released sugars from plants into nutrients such as vitamins and amino acids. So this is a truly symbiotic system. They've evolved over millions of years and you have these different players that all need to be there. So hyphae, if you say have like a piece of moldy bread in your kitchen or something, would people be able to see hyphae? Would this be like the mold on the surface of the bread? Is it the same thing? Yeah. So it, it looks like um, you kind of have a stem and then you have a, a circle at the end. So it's kind of the stem that goes out and then this kind of nutrient packed little circle um, that they, they devour uh, is what it looks like. I think the the impressive thing is how hard these ants work. They're constantly tending to their garden. You know, this is their life force. This is the nutrients for their entire colony. So, you know, you have the worker ants going out, running out, getting all these leaves, bringing them back. The gardens themselves have a lot of flexibility. So they'll often get flowers. They can, you know, take many different types of plant material. And that's because the fungus garden itself, it can change the proteins that are made according to the introduction of these different substrates, which is pretty amazing. It's a little bioreactor. So you can see the ants bringing the leaves in, they're incorporating them into the top. They're constantly maintaining this garden, taking out twigs, maybe pieces of leaves that didn't digest well, taking those out and just constantly keep this fungus in really good shape. And then to kind of branch out from that, you know, you always have parasitic, you know, bacteria and fungus that you have to worry about. And these fungal gardens, they're actually able to produce compounds to make sure that the appropriate fungus, so make antifungals to attack parasitic fungus and antibacterial moieties to get rid of bacteria that shouldn't be there. So they can really keep the symbiotic system where there's been careful members co-evolved over millions of years. So those are the main residents performing this activity. So maybe we could zoom out and go to the big picture here. What do we stand to learn from studying a system like this? That's a great question. So, you know, yeah. Why do we care how the leafcutter ant fungal gardens breaks down plants? How can it benefit us? Why do we care at all? Well, really this research aids in the development of microbial systems that can produce valuable compounds from plant biomass. So, you know, I already touched upon the the antifungals. Um, well, it, it's even bigger than that. So the development of bio-based fuels, materials, and chemicals um, is really crucial for creating a strong bioeconomy and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. So the fungus is breaking down plant components. Um, for example, you know, it's breaking down cellulose, hemicellulose into high energy sugars. Lignin is also part of these leaves and it's broken down into small aromatic compounds. And then the bacteria can further metabolize these breakdown products into other useful bioproducts. So by breakdown products and, you know, the sugars, the aromatic compounds, and then also the compounds synthesized by the bacteria, these bio-based products could potentially replace um, commonly used petroleum-based molecular building blocks. So we can take them and we can make biofuels and also um, less toxic paints, adhesive, plastics. So our overall goal, figure out how nature does things really well, how it's evolved to do these things well over millions of years. So we can learn from nature. You know, we can understand how nature takes a renewable resource 
that's easily at our feet, like plant material, and transform it into useful bio-based compounds. And really, and this can improve our everyday lives. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like there are so many cases like this where we stand to learn a lot and, and help advance society and solve some of our most pressing problems by looking to nature. I mean, does this count as a form of biomimicry? Would that be the right term for this? Actually, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would think, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a living bioreactor. You know, we're very interested uh, as an economy of building biorefineries where we're figuring out how to take natural systems and make the necessary products we need. And this is a great example where, where you have this and we can learn how it's done in nature. We can learn what bacteria are doing certain processes, what enzymes the fungus is making to break it down into the precursors. And we can leverage it for helping in so many different ways. I love that. So we've covered the ants, we've covered the fungus, we've covered the bacteria, but are there other agents here? I think there's a, a parasitic fungus that can come into play as well too, is that right? Yeah, and there, there's viruses, um, there's so many different things happening here. And, you know, I, I think we have a lot of research that we're, we're still doing. And, and one of the ways that we're kind of unraveling this is our, our previous research demonstrated the need for, you know, community level interactions. So we know bacteria and fungus, they need to work together in this ecosystem, but we're still lacking, you know, that detailed knowledge about specific species interactions, specific functions by specific microbes. Um, that occur for efficient plant deconstruction, making these really cool bioproducts in the ecosystem. So there's still a lot to learn. One of the ways that we want to do this, because of course it's challenging to assess because there's high heterogeneity of species composition and activities occurring across space, occurring across time. As I described the fungal garden ecosystem before, you have the different hemispheres, it looks different, it's compositionally different you know, bacteria are small. So we need better tools. And that's, that's what we're doing now. So we are able to get down to, to figure out the main players and, and what they're doing. So now we need to start figuring out micro scale. Uh, so we're developing micro scale proteomic approaches that can really analyze very small samples. So micron size samples and provide detailed information on the location and function of fungal and bacterial proteins. From all this, we can take microscale proteomics and we can visualize what microbes and what proteins are producing these byproducts of interest. And that's where we get our true knowledge, where we can start leveraging it on a larger scale. That's great. I think it might be useful for our listeners to hear what is proteomics. I mean, that might be something that they don't hear on a, a regular basis, but that's such a huge field and there's so many things happening there. Could you give us a broad strokes understanding of what's going on in proteomics? Yes, we all know genomics. So that's that's our DNA. That's the genes we have. And as I mentioned, not all the genes are always expressed. It depends on your environment. If you need a certain protein made to survive, you're not going to waste your energy changing all of your genes into proteins all the time. So what proteomics does is we use mass spectrometry and we can see small segments of proteins called peptides, and we can reliably identify them. We can figure out what amino acids make up these particular peptides. And we're leveraging the information from the genes, from the genome. So we can see in a specific point in time, you know, a micron scale, 
piece of the fungal garden that, that has a certain amount of plant composition undergoing degradation that's also making all these other cool bioproducts from it, we can look at there and see exactly what proteins are there and their relative abundance. So we can see what bacterial proteins are there, what fungal proteins are there, and we can start to kind of put them together in pathways. And we can see what metabolites are being made and what lipids. So the genome is the backbone of our lives. It's the blueprint. And then really it's the proteins, the lipids, the metabolites. These are the things that make species who they are and make them do particular functions. So we're getting back into those effector molecules. And, and that's the level of detail we really need to start to understand complex symbiosis like this. And so the cousin of proteomics then would be lipidomics, right? Uh, where you're studying lipids. Could you, could you tell me, like, what, what is a, a lipid? Yeah. So uh, when we think of our, our cells, um, lipids are actually molecules that make up our membranes for our cells. They're also, we can think of fats. They're really high density, rich energy, rich compounds that we can eat and we can metabolize to give us all this energy. And then as they're metabolized, they can also create little tiny metabolites that can create certain functions. You know, they can create inflammation, they can create specific functions that are happening in these complex biological systems. And we did a, a lipidomic study of the, the leafcutter ant fungal garden. It was our first microscale study. And that's where we looked at lipids from the leaves, lipids throughout the fungal garden, that top, middle, and bottom going initial, intermediate, and advanced degradation. We also looked at the lipids in those microscopic gongolidia, so those hyphae that the ants eat. And one really neat result of that study is that we saw the leaf lipids. We could visualize how they were transformed and they were degraded in this consortia. And then as the consortia made new lipids. So we could see a particular lipid called linoleic acid, which has 18 carbons and two double bonds. It's a fatty acid. It was increased and it was made in the garden. And we saw it was enriched in the hyphae that the ants eat. So we're like, well, that's interesting. So let's, let's do a behavioral study and see if the ants react to this different. And we found the ants were highly attracted to this linoleic acid. We put, it was a pretty neat study. We took these paper discs and we dissolved our fatty acid, linoleic acid in it. And then we put it on the disc and then we had a control disc that didn't have it in there. And as soon as the ants smelled it, they sensed it, they go over and pick up these paper discs that were soaked with it. They carry it around. They were very excited about this. So from this, we got even another piece of information about the symbiosis. So, you know, not only is it producing the food that that the ants need, it is releasing these molecules, these small lipids that attract the ant to the gongolidia. And the reason why, as I mentioned with the gongolidia, it has that stem and then it has that that really nutrient rich, you know, circle. That's that's that gongolidia piece. By enriching that piece with just the, the linoleic acid that the ants like, it can make it so the ant's not going to damage that stem part. So it's just going to feed on that nutrient-rich gongolidia that the fungus is purposely making for the ant. So it works kind of like a, a signal. It's a, it's a way for the fungus to direct the ant's attention and say, it's okay to eat this part, but don't, don't eat all of me. Exactly. Yep. It, it doesn't want to have to regrow the whole thing. Um, you know, it's, it's directing it to 
this is what I made for you. Um, it's delicious and it smells delicious. Mm, delicious fungus. Yes. Sounds so good. <laughs> <laughs> so Kristen, I'd love to know what is your most favorite part of doing this research? You know, I love studying natural systems and really uncovering things that the symbiosis that we had no idea that occurred. And, you know, when you look at the complexity of natural systems and trying to figure out, you know, who they're the main players, how they're they're doing these unique functions. I, I think that's what really makes it, it fun every day to be a scientist. So Kristen, are there any organizations or groups that you'd like to call out that made this research possible? Uh, yes, there there is. Um, actually, U.S. Department of Energy, uh, Office of Science, Office of Biological and Environmental Research. Uh, they gave me a early career research uh, program award back in 2019 to study this system and really advance what we had in the beginning and, and start looking at everything on the micro scale uh, to try and figure out the symbiosis. So yeah, uh, thank you to them for the funding for this research. That's awesome. Well, really appreciate the, the good work you're doing and appreciate you sharing this with us. Well, thank you, Brendan. And thank you for having me on the podcast. This was a lot of fun uh, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was a blast. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.